Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Amigos y amigas, me llamo Derek, and I am very excited to be here back with another Midnight Myth episode. Are you excited to be here, Derek? I really, truly am, and I'm really excited for the topic today. So if you listened to our last week episode and you're a regular listener, which is, I assume everybody is, you know that Laurel and I got married, and we went on our honeymoon in the wonderful, beautiful country of Mexico, and this really got me thinking of how can we do honor, do tribute, show respect to the beautiful, beautiful Mexican um, country, the culture that welcomed us in with open arms in which that we got to enjoy and celebrate our honeymoon. And that line of thought led me to a few different places. Um, one, we are we are celebrated our wedding and we celebrated our honeymoon in fall. So what about Mexico in fall? Can we tell where's this combination between fall and Mexico? And two, is there a piece of literature, cinema, you know, dialogue out there happening that involves something where lack of a better term, it deals with Mexicanness, um, which isn't a real word. I just made it up, but sure. Something that is that is of and for and about and in celebration of the beautiful, beautiful country of Mexico. And we got to thinking that fall has a fantastic um, fall celebration, Mexican celebration called Dia de los Muertos, which is lines up very similar to Halloween in many ways and many beats. Yeah, it actually takes place on the Catholic holiday of All Saints Day and All Souls Day right between those. So it is in the same uh, traditional vein. It branches off from some of the same holidays and has a few of the same themes, but is a very distinct holiday and a very distinct cultural moment. And thank you for that. And that brought us to the 2017 Pixar animated feature length film Coco. Yeah. So we are going to remember Coco today, and we are going to discuss all things Coco 
in a celebration both of our marriage and reflection on our honeymoon. And if you've been a fan of us from the beginning, when we travel and we go somewhere, we want to do an episode inspired by the travel. So this is very much that episode. And I really just can't wait to talk about Coco today. Me too. It's a wonderful story. And if you haven't seen Coco, I highly recommend heading over to Netflix while you can uh, and catching up on it. It's 90 minutes of pure joy and love and just inspiration. Uh, and in you know the grand tradition of Pixar, it doesn't dumb anything down for a young audience. It gives you really deeply emotionally felt, intelligent, and profound storytelling here that not only illuminates, you know, different parts of the world, different cultures, and, you know, different ways of thinking to young people, but to us as adults. So you really can't go wrong. And it's just a wonderful story. Before we jump into analyzing Coco, I just want to say, if you want to join in the conversation, it never starts or ends here in the podcast studio with me and Derek. We want you involved. So Head over to our social media if you want to hit us up or have any kind of conversation with us. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com and drop us a line there. And if you haven't yet, make sure you head to your favorite podcast app wherever you're listening now and hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating or a review if you have the time because it helps us reach a wider audience. Awesome. So Coco came out in 2017, currently sitting 97% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty fresh. It's cumulative, pardon me, worldwide gross ticket sales are $807,082,196. Chump change. Tons of pesos. Um, so it was. it's safe to say that it was a smash freaking hit. Yeah. Beyond its just popularity... Um, doing a quick Google search on how many awards, I found that it won 12 awards. There might be more. I didn't do a ton of digging, two of which were Oscars for Best Animated Feature and Best Song for Remember Me. Um, it was directed by Lee Unkirch. Um, an interesting thing, digging into Pixar movies, they often also have a co-director. So I imagine there's like a director. The co-director is specifically listed as a co-director, so I don't know... Maybe they're a little under the, the one that's yeah, just Yeah, you the don't director. necessarily know what their role is, but you yeah. have to imagine with something like an animated film, there is so much going into it uh, outside of what a regular director would do. So it's not just about what shot is this going to be, what performance is the actor going to give. There's a whole other world of uh, creation out there. So that makes sense. And the co-director is Adrian Molina. Uh, Lee Unkrich also is credited as the main writer Great. And the genesis of the whole story there. But there are three other writers also credited on the movie. Other just interesting things, digging into these creative minds behind this movie, they all pretty much exclusively just work at Pixar. Yeah, okay, great. Um, and that is something that I find fascinating. Yeah. Because most directors, successful directors, people that can make a movie that makes nearly a billion dollars in ticket sales they usually shop around from studio to studio. Pixar is unique in that if you look at it, most of the people directing a Pixar movie are working with Pixar, doing things with Pixar, have multiple roles at Pixar. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that's one of the, the elements of the secret sauce of why 
all of their movies are awesome. That's that's really fascinating because just like you say, uh, you know, a, a great director might shop around to other studios, but great studios often shop or, or successful studios shop around to different directors. No studio like Paramount isn't only calling the same 10 people. They're trying to shop out uh, and hire new talent and cultivate that new talent throughout Hollywood. But what's really interesting about Pixar is that it has a standard. It has set a standard of being like the bar for animated uh, films for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. And that talent is homegrown. That talent lives in this pool and has the Pixar style, has the Pixar uh, morality, has the Pixar ethos and philosophy down. So that actually makes a lot of sense to me uh, and is a really interesting way to uh, to create your movie house. It's like, let's make things that always reflect Pixar values. Exactly right. And and I think they cultivate that. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that. Now, this wasn't really the planned topic of conversation, but what would you define as the quote-unquote Pixar values? Yeah, um, I, I definitely walked into that. Um, <laughs> but I, I think some of the things that I was just laying out are, are part of it, that there is a uh, kind of universality to Pixar movies that they are clearly geared and marketed toward uh, young audiences, but they work really hard to create something that is quality for everyone, uh, that can speak to all ages and all kinds of people. I think inclusion is uh, is how I would wrap that up, but it also speaks to how they uh, work culturally uh, as an inclusive uh, creator of, of movies from the beginning. Um, and then I would say, oh, wow, it's, it's so hard to, to pin it down, but, uh, there is, there is an appreciation and a, uh, an elevation of complexity, uh, that Pixar exemplifies more than most movie houses out there, um, that are not, they're not just trying to crank out an entertaining thing. They're trying to, uh, dig below the surface in a mainstream movie and show us all that there is more to life than, and more to movies and more to stories than we might think was there. There's more to life and there's more to us and we, we can do better. We have more potential than we thought that we had. I think you nailed it there. I'd like to add on top of that as a complimentary thought to that one because I, I agree with everything that you said and the idea that there is more to life, there's more to us. I think Pixar... Every movie celebrates the innate specialness in something. Yeah. Whether that is... An uh, inanimate toy. Whether that is picking up a guitar in a mausoleum on De los, uh, Dia de los Muertes right. and strumming the right chord, that, that guitar can then help you transport yourself into the realm of the dead. You know, that there is a specialness that might just seem like a random street mutt named Dante who isn't really good for doing much but eating and scratching his fleas, who turns out to be the exact spirit animal you need in order to travel out of the, the realm of the dead and yeah. back into the realm of the living. Yeah. That there's a, like an inherent specialness in something just as simple as making shoes. And that, that making shoes can be a work of art that you can be proud of and can be beautiful. I think Pixar values are always about finding the inherent specialness and the inherent amazingness all around us 
in this beautiful thing called existence. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Like it's it's making me think of Toy Story, it's making me think of Wally, of Finding Nemo, of Inside Out and how much um how much celebration is placed on things that we would often overlook or take for granted. Well, it didn't take us long to get into a total boomerang. Welcome to the rabbit hole. Yeah, side tangent, not what we planned to start as the intro. But yes, so let's let's ground us back to specifically into Coco. So I'm going to call it, I'm a hardcore Coco fanboy. Yeah. It is most likely, I reserve the right to change my mind under future discussions at this podcast. That was my, the fine print, everyone. My favorite Pixar movie and easily in top 10 favorite movies of yeah. all time. Yeah. Um, and depending on how I'm feeling, maybe even top five. Wow. You know, it, yeah. I, and that's just how much I love this movie. Uh, it's just great. A personal note, I... I was raised in a in a family that was very liberal and very fantastic, but did teach me some traditional masculine characteristics. What do I mean by that? I mean that I wasn't taught that men should cry in public. Men hold in their feelings, and they are reserved and more stoic. And whether that's right or wrong is not the topic of conversation here, but that movie breaks down that lifelong lesson of hold yeah. in your tears and I ball my eyes out every time I see it. Yeah, the floodgates are open. And that is very unique for me just as a human being. That's not something that I do typically. And it touches a special place in my heart um, and I love this movie. So, but beyond just the fanboyness, I asked a fundamental question in preparation for this podcast. What is Dia de los Muertes? I really didn't know much about it. I know the iconography. I know what the symbols look like. I know that it is Mexican. I know that you see it pop up in Mexican-American communities in America. And I also know that, you know, a lot of gringos have tried to appropriate it a little bit into their Halloween ceremonies as well. And But I really didn't know anything else about it other than that. And like... Anything that you research and when you ask, what is this thing really about? It is so deeper and so much more interesting than you originally imagined. So Dia de los Muertes is a combination of Mesoamerican Aztec culture and Catholicism. Right. So I'm going to get a little into the history here. There was a great empire in Mesoamerica, the areas that we now consider Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador. Yeah, Latin know, America. Latin America, uh, you know, and they were the Aztecs. So fun facts about the Aztecs. We generally think of them as sort of a more monolithic people, and that's just part of the problem of being a modern person. We do that, which isn't really true. There were actually a variety of different subcultures and a variety of different um, amalgamations, and it was very fluid. But we generally think of the Aztec Empire at the founding of the city of, I'm going to brutally fuck up this name, Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan was formed in 1325 of the Common Era. And that is the city by which the Aztec Empire, where we get the Aztec calendars that we see, where we think of the brutal human sacrifices that they practiced, where we think of them as a like militaristic almost like the Spartans of Mesoamerica. Well, that was the the empire founded around that city-state that spread out. And they practiced a thing called manism. It's a really weird word. 
It yeah. is essentially ancestor worship. So in any culture where you praise your ancestors, you're engaging in a form of manism, which is to say man, not necessarily gendered man, like yeah. not boys, but the human species, when you die, there is a place that you go in which if the living people make offerings to, those ancestors will give something back. So you don't have to be a, for example, a Greek demigod like Heracles to have a sacrifice made to you so that you can give something back to the living. General everyday people in the afterlife can give back to the living. This creates a cyclical and symbiotic relationship between the living and the dead. This was a highly practiced and um, ritualized part of Aztec civilization. I don't know, listeners, if you are familiar with your history, but under the papal banner of the crusade, the conquistadors from Spain came, met the Aztecs. The Aztecs actually tried to have diplomatic relations, and when the Spanish conquistadors saw how much actual gold they have, they systematically destroyed the entire civilization, and they were able to do so because they were had uh, technologically superior weapons of war. They had things like gunpowder horses. Because of that, they were able to pretty much wipe out the Aztecs, blessed by the Catholic Church through the Crusade. Topic for another conversation. I'd love to talk about the Crusades, but because they're everywhere and they shape the world as we know it. Long story short, the Aztec Empire is completely conquered, but like any people that are conquered, they don't disappear, right? They aren't just completely burned off of the face of the planet. They're actually molded into the Catholic conquerors and the society that we now know as Mexico. And one of the the traditions that has melded, that works well, because if you're a conquered person and the people over you are like, okay, we've conquered you, now you're Catholic. You're like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not Catholic, I'm a fucking Aztec. I worship my ancestors. Well, a way to bring the conquered people into it is to bring some of their traditions in while they get reshaped and reformed by the conquerors. Which is a pattern we've seen time and time again, especially with the Catholic Church. Uh, And when we look to uh, celebrations that have endured, holidays that have endured, uh, the Catholic Church assimilating pagan or um, or ancient ideas into their fold is rampant. Uh, We look at Christmas, we look at Halloween, uh, we even look at uh, cultures and religions that have survived with Catholic influence like voodoo. And there is just this incredible syncretism that evolves out of that relationship. Absolutely. And so in Catholicism, they have All Saints Day, where the veil between the living and the dead, that, that barrier loosens and you can communicate to the saints a little better, a little more. And saint and having a human being become a saint is in many ways um, symbolically a little like manism. Yeah. And I don't well, want to say... the next day is All Souls Day, which is the day that honors all dead Christians. So you have that veil thinning between not just you and the martyrs, but you and all Christians who came before you. Right. And and I don't want to say that manism and canonization are the same thing. They're very different. Right, right. But there is a similaris and similarity, pardon me, similaris is not a word. There is a similarity. <laughs> yeah. And as you say, then it comes to All Souls Day. 
So this is the practice of Dia de los Muertes, which is a three-day celebration that happens between October 31st to November 2nd every year. Now, the idea with that is that you remember and you practice manism. You give offerings to your ancestors, and by doing so, they give their blessings back to you. This is directly the main sort of um, the main sort of spiritual plot world that Coco is set in. There is a human boy trapped in the land of the dead named Miguel, who gets there by accident through performing a ritual in De La Cruz's you know grave, and he needs a blessing to return back to the living. So the dead bless the living by giving offerings. So what does Miguel have to do to get back home? What's the offering he needs to make? He has to give up music. Right. Something he refuses to do. And does he get trapped there or can he get a relative that will bless him and allow him to keep his music is the whole crux of the movie. And that's why he goes on this awesome journey in there. Which is kind of amazing that the the central uh, conflict of this of this film is Miguel trying to uh, trying to escape his own family, the people who love him, because he has to make a moral choice. He has to make a philosophical uh, sacrifice, and that is that is what spurs him to this entire thing. So he's not serendipitously thrown into you know a journey where he has to fight a bunch of monsters. He's not doing a kind of traditional hero narrative that we might expect in a kids movie. He is wrestling with a true philosophical dilemma. What is more important to me? My music, which is part of my identity, or my family, which is also part of my identity? Which part of me is the most important to preserve? And he has to find a way to balance or to reconcile those two things. And that's the journey that we're really on. Right. Because a musician, his great-great-grandfather abandoned his family, which we then learn as the spirit Hector never abandoned his family. He was returning to his family and was murdered by the antagonist, Dela Cruz, to steal his music and take his music and become famous. The family forbids Miguel to even sing a song, let alone try to pursue a career as a musician. And this, this story, and I think this is why I love Coco so much, because it, I can so personally relate to that. So I am a drummer and wanted very much when I was a young man to just be a drummer. All I wanted to do was drum all day long. And my family put pressure saying that not in a Coco way, you know, cause my, they always encouraged me to play music, Yeah. you know? So I was always encouraged. My dad was my first music teacher, but they definitely when planning out my life as a young man being like, I just want to drum. That's all I want to do. They were like, you have to think of something else. Music can't be your career. And I felt that pressure and lo and behold, you know, my family were giving me what they believed to be the best advice at the time and pragmatic advice there is a tug and pull in a young artist in a young artist's heart, pardon me, which is, am I pragmatic and choose a profession that can give me a nice house, or do I pursue my dream of creating art and pursue it at all costs, even knowing that that might mean a lifetime of hardship and poverty? And Miguel is going through 
that exact crisis where he wants to be a musician because that's who he is. And that's what he wants to be, where the family is saying, no, learn the family business and make shoes. You'll have a good living. You'll have a good life. You'll be respected in the community. If you follow the way of music, you'll probably turn out to be a loser, just like your great-great-grandfather. I want to come back to something you said as you started kind of relating your experience, which is that you could personally relate to Coco as a movie. And I think that's an important and very simple thing to say, but it's an important thing to point out um, because it says a lot about relationships to art, I think. So not just your relationship to the movie, but your relationship to music. My relationship to music. This is something that I wanna I wanna highlight and I wanna track through Coco is is personal relationships. Because when you hear a song that you really love, if there is a song that really makes it through to you, you don't love that song because it's universal, right? You don't love that song because everybody likes that song. Nobody's really getting personally spoken to by Uptown Funk, as great a song as it is, and everybody likes that song. But maybe there's a song that personally speaks to you, that says something really potent about your experience, or maybe the, the way the notes line up reminds you of a lullaby that somebody used to sing to you. There is always, in the music that really, really is meaningful, it's personal, not universal. This is a, 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 these are two worlds, the personal and the universal, that I'm going to start to look at, I think. Uh, and our relationship to music is that way. Our relationship to movies are often that way. We love this movie because it feels like it was made for me. Or I love this song because it feels like it's singing directly to me. That's something that I want to start thinking about in, uh, in relationship to Coco. And I think the movie Coco wouldn't be so successful if the music wasn't able to pull my heartstrings in the way that it does. Yeah. Because if you make a movie about the power of music inspiring someone to literally defy the laws of the, uh, of the, nature, of yeah. nature, you know, because the power of music is so strong in that, that one person, the music in itself in the movie has to be exceptional. And it, it is. Um, it won it, best song in the Oscars. It won best song because that is truly a, a beautiful song. But let's look at Miguel as a character and how he starts this movie. Uh, so we have a young boy who is excitable, who is telling his life story to somebody on the street who he happens to be giving a shoe shine to, an extremely extroverted, warm and loving, but hot-headed and stubborn kind of character. We know this guy. And he's the kind of kid who can watch a movie about uh, Ernesto de la Cruz playing a, a renegade musician or who can hear a song and think that de la Cruz is speaking directly to him, who can feel a personal, magical, destiny-like connection to that public figure. And that is, that's extremely telling about who Miguel is, that music can make that much of a personal connection for him that he thinks it is literally fate or literally magic. Once that is seemingly confirmed, when he realizes that Dela Cruz's guitar is in that family photo of his mama Emirda, that's proven right. It's like that magical connection, my destiny being music has been proven. My personal connection to music 
is not just something that was made up out of thin air. It's because it's in my bones. It's because it's in my ancestry. That's what takes... Uh, that's what takes Miguel on this journey. That's what sends him flying to the land of the dead. Totally agree with that. Absolutely right. So when we get to the land of the dead and he meets his long lost family, he gets the opportunity to go back to his people, go back to being alive. But it's on the condition that he give up playing music because Mama Mierda, his great-great-grandmother, is still heartbroken, is still holding that grudge against the man who left her. And she's unable to give that up in order to give her grandson another chance. She says, I give you my blessing to go back to the land of the living and to never play music again. What I love about that, too, is just on a slight interjection here, how that this movie builds a rigid bureaucracy. Oh, I with know, right? Computers and cops and, you know, middle management and preconditions on blessings and things like that that just add to like, okay, that's what the land of the dead would look like now. Yeah, the land of the dead is a fully functioning society. It's just the land of the living, but brighter colors and more, more spirit with, animals. With magical animals everywhere. Yeah, yeah. the alibi has. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. I, um, and I just love that. So technically, she can put whatever preconditions on the blessing that she wants. But it goes back to the central Dio de los Muertos theme. The dead give blessings to the living. The living give their memory give offering, and yeah. offering to yeah, the and dead, which, keeps, currency, them, right? which yeah. keeps them alive. Important to note, when someone is completely forgotten, they meet a more true death where they disappear into dust. Yeah, once the last person in the living world has forgotten about you, you go through the final death and you completely disappear. Um, Hector, a character that we meet uh, early on in Miguel's journey into the land of the dead, is right up against the gun when it comes to this final death. This is a character who is begging. He's kind of a, he's kind of a silly, like superfluous looking character at the beginning. We have no like personal connection to him when it starts, except that we know he is desperate to get his picture on someone's ofrenda. We just think he's this wacky guy who is just trying to pull one over on the bureaucracy. Um, but as we, as we descend, as we move forward into the land of the dead and learn more about this character and learn more about the people that he surrounds himself with, we start to feel that incredibly high stakes pain of like, what if you were completely forgotten? What if there was no more memory of you in the living world? Uh, and it's almost, I almost think that the fading away is less painful than just the knowledge of knowing that no one remembers you. That's, that's the real heartbreaker for me is mm -hmm. that inability to communicate between those two worlds and how important it is for Miguel to be this intercession between the two. And for the character Hector to have been robbed of his chance to live a long, happy life, as we learned, because he was murdered, um, and to that gross injustice gets compounded when we think of he is also going to be separated from the memory of his ancestors due right. to no fault of his own. Right. He's going to just disappear, and which is why... When Miguel finally sings, remember me to Mama Coco, and she remembers him, it's like quadruple stakes. Like, it yeah. adds it like Miguel needs to prove 
to his family that music is actually good and positive, Mama Coco needs to remember Hector or Hector disappears and suddenly all of the plot threads of this movie intertwine in one beautiful sentimental moment in which if this doesn't pull off, the entire narrative was for naught. And in it, we see Mama Coco clearly at the end of her life in a state of more mental decline, hear a song and have a memory and sing and then talk and things that we don't see her do in any other and remember and how powerful that is and how even if you take the relationship between the living and the dead as symbolism and dia de los muertos as a symbolic way to give offerings to the dead for them to give blessings to you that is fucking beautiful so let's talk about remember me can we talk about Remember Me? Is yes. that okay? It's like, it is the theme of the whole movie, Remember Me. So I want to talk about this song because, yeah, it is that through line. It is the theme of the entire movie. Memory is currency. Memory is power. Memory is the most important resource of this movie universe. But the first time that we hear Remember Me, it's when Miguel is giving us a voiceover exposition of his culture, of his neighborhood, of his family history, and we're hearing Dela Cruz sing it on uh, you know, a fabulous stage with backup dancers and an orchestra and an audience that's swooning over him. And it's beautiful, right? We're like, wow, what a great song. And Miguel's like, this is the best song he ever wrote. And I have to say, the first time I watched it and I heard Dela Cruz singing the song, I was like, this movie's so fucking transparent. I know exactly what it's going to do to me. I know it's going to bring this song back and I'm going to cry. And I saw it coming miles away and I still was completely destroyed by it, um, which is pretty much a powerful thing that it does with that music. But that performance of the song by Dela Cruz, Dela Cruz himself as a figure, is universal. That's a song that everyone likes. We come back to it over and over and over again, that that version of the song is everybody's favorite. And when they're at the talent show trying to get onto Dela Cruz's uh, party stage, everybody's preparing their own rendition of Remember Me because everybody has a relationship to it. He's a public figure that everybody feels like they have some ownership or possession of. He's on so many people's ofrendas that he has too much offering to do anything with. You go to his house and you see he's got a mountain of guitars and a mountain of sweetbreads and a mountain of hot dogs or whatever. And I think they were tamales. <laughs> I don't know why I said hot dogs because I forgot anything else but hot dogs. I'm pretty certain they were tamales. Yeah, but he go did on. have a mountain of tamales. He had a few mountains though. Um, tamales are one of my favorite foods, but. That's the universal version of that song, right? As we move forward, we learn more about the backstory of Dela Cruz and Hector. We learn more about Miguel's actual relationship to those two characters. Once it's revealed that Miguel is not a descendant of Dela Cruz, but is a descendant of Hector, that they're family and they're proud to be each other's family. They talk about that history. They talk about what happened between Hector and Dela Cruz, which is Hector didn't really want to be a famous musician. He just wanted to provide for his family, and he loved music. So he packed up, and he brought his songs with him, and he decided to go home. Dela Cruz wouldn't have it, but Miguel says, didn't you want to share those things with the world? You don't want to share 
remember me with the world? And Hector says, I didn't write remember me for the world. I wrote remember me for Coco. And that, I think, is the most powerful delineation of the personal and the universal within this film because other than the living and the dead, those are the two worlds that we straddle the most, the personal and the universal. Hector wrote a song directed at his daughter, his beloved daughter. And because of that, when we hear Remember Me, we think of our father or we think of our daughter or we think of our loved ones who might be far away or our loved ones who might not be living anymore. That's why we have a personal connection to that song. If you write a song thinking this song is for everyone, there is no personal connection there, if that makes any sense. It makes so much sense. And Sorry, think go about, on. Yeah, and think about some of the other music in that movie. All of it is beautiful, but Miguel sings uh, the one song with the chorus that says, uh, music is my language and the world es mi familia. Un poco loco, is that, that This one? is after Un poco loco. Okay. Um, at the party with Dela Cruz, and Dela Cruz continues to echo the world. So the world is my family. I don't have a family. The world is my family. But that's it. If the world is your family, you don't have a, a, a close-knit group of people who personally love you. If you belong to the entire world, you don't belong to anyone. If the world belongs to you, no one belongs to you. So there is a clear, um, a, a clear divide between those public figures who actually are alone in the spotlight and our, our kind of tenuous, um, as, as magical as they may feel, our tenuous relationships to them and our genuine relationships to the people who love us and how, how tense those can be, how difficult those can be, how tough they can be to, uh, to keep up sometimes but how important those threads are for continuing to keep us alive, keep us strong, keep us happy, keep us remembered. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting conflict that this movie plays with and that you're touching on, and the conflict of the personal to the universal. And I ask myself, when it comes to great art that speaks to me, to whom does this art belong? Right. You know, and... In many ways, it it personally connects to me. So I think of like my favorite, favorite song in the whole world, right? Right. And um, I don't actually know what that is, but I'm just thinking. It's my favorite song in the whole world. I have a few contenders. How deeply I'm connected to that song and how personal that I have that connection. However, it's important to point out, I'm not the only one that feels that. Exactly. So there is an element of universal universalizability to beauty and and great art that should be shared. You know, I had a friend of mine who thought that museums were fundamentally bad for humanity because art should be everywhere. It should be part of our lives. It shouldn't be locked and stored away in places that you have to pay to gain entry to. It should be part, we should see, we should be able to walk into a bar and see Rembrandt on the wall and like an actual Rembrandt. And I thought of how universal great art is that once it taps into that beauty, it, it elevates itself to some sort of universalizability, yet we perceive and we experience it personally. And what I think 
Coco, the movie, does so well is that it it lets music be the personal stakes of Miguel. Yeah. So it it is ultimately the battle he is fighting for. He is fighting for his right to pursue music as his career mm-hmm. rather than shoemaking. And he's willing to risk death, being permanently stuck in the land of the dead, which is dying. He's risking his life to get a blessing so that he can do that simply because he wants to then go around and share it with the world. Yeah. Now, what's amazing with the character Miguel is that he gets both. He gets to share music with the world and he gets the blessing of his family because they get to see the power of music as well. Most of us don't get that lucky. We don't get to end up the way Miguel ends up, right? No, but what's important about that balance that he strikes, the fact that he gets both, is because he's not the only character on a philosophical journey. Mama Mierda is on as much of a a philosophical journey as he is because she's trying to reconcile the wounds of her past, being left alone with her daughter to reshape her life, with the fact that her greatest memories are of her and Hector singing songs to Coco. She's trying to reconcile the fact that she had to give up something she loved more than anything in the world, music, because it was too painful to remember that her lover left. And she sees that reflected in Miguel, and by the end, she's able to recognize that keeping him from music is not helping her family. That is hurting her family because Miguel is her family. Miguel's ready to give it up because he recognizes that family is most important. And Emierda gives up her conditions because she realizes family is the most important. Absolutely. And Miguel wouldn't have this music, wouldn't have this divine ability to create music without the relationships that he has because it taps into his heart, his, his proud corazón as he sings in the last song. His music is about his love for his family. Absolutely. But to answer your question of like, is it about the conflict of the personal and the universal? I think with Coco, it is about reconciling them. Yeah, absolutely. And and reconciling that if you have the ability to make a bridge between them, to make great art that enhances the way people think and feel and live in the world. If you can be a Hector and be an amazing poet, you know, you do kind of have an obligation to do that, but at the same time, you shouldn't have to give up your family for that. You know, you still have the right to have a beautiful family and to have people that love and support you. And I think that's the lesson. I also have another lesson that I take out of Coco too. Yeah. And I think to me, it speaks to the heart of why the midnight myth exists. And it is the intersection of all of the things that make a good story. So pre-literate humanity, how did humans pass on memories? How did humans pass on knowledge? What did people do when they couldn't read and write to teach the next generation who they were, how to hunt, how to farm? How did it work? Song. It is from the power of song that we have poetry, mythology, music, history, history yeah. that we have um, education and knowledge from the power of, of, of humans together singing songs. 
we get all of these beautiful things, and which is why I think music is so deeply ingrained into the human experience because before we knew how to put words on paper, we could sing and we could create mnemonic devices that help us remember. And that's how knowledge was passed generation to generation. That's how religion was formed. That's how so many things started from humans ability to sing a song to remember And based upon singing a song to remember, they would celebrate, they would cry, they would lament, they would learn all of the messy and fucking tragic and and, um, triumphant and horrible and and, exuberant things of what it means to be alive. All were celebrated through the power of song. And so many of the things that we have, history, mythology, philosophy, are three pillars of the midnight myth all are rooted deeply in humans and our ability to create music. Which brings me back, which brings me back to Remember Me, brings us back to that final scene between Mama Coco and Miguel. As he pulls out his guitar to sing to her in hopes that it will make her remember, it works. When nothing else works, when she calls him by made-up names. She can't even remember Miguel's name. She doesn't know who her daughter is when she comes into a room. Mama Coco is clearly in the throes of Alzheimer's or dementia or simply near the end of her life and unable to remember things that were once important to her. And music, personal, connected music, the song that her dad used to sing to her before he would go on a tour, stimulates a remembrance of her own identity, a remembrance of herself. Listening to that music makes her more herself. It reminds me, there is a documentary that came out a few years ago and some videos from it went viral on social media for a little while. So you may have seen this video, but the documentary is called Alive Inside and it is directed by Michael Rosado Bennett if you want to seek it out. But It spends a lot of time on uh, nursing homes and it follows researchers and recreational therapists who are working with people in nursing homes. Many of them are patients uh, suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia and shows what happens when you equip those patients with an iPod that is preloaded with music from their childhood or music that they loved when they were younger. Uh, And there's a great video of this uh, old man, Henry, who is given an iPod, he's completely unresponsive, he's kind of unable to answer simple questions, they give him some music, and he starts dancing in his chair. He starts moving his arms and his legs and singing, like wildly singing with abandon. And it's just incredibly beautiful and moving. And when they take the headphones off of him, they start asking him questions, uh, like yes or no questions, like, do you like music? And he said, yeah, I love music. I love Cab Calloway. I love Heidi, 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 hi, and just starts going and starts talking coherently and beautifully. And it's it's not hard to imagine that the writers and the directors of Coco have seen that documentary or at least have seen this in action because it's based in this very real thing that music stimulates memory, music stimulates parts of the brain and has scientifically been shown Uh, to improve memory tests in people with Alzheimer's. So there is something about music 
that is able to connect us back to ourselves once we've lost ourselves. It's this kind of beautiful, um, it mirrors Miguel's journey in a way where Mama Coco has to come back to herself and Miguel has to come back to himself. Literally, he has to come back to his body in the living world. But music being the conduit that brings us there because music is family, music is love. Yeah, you know, I think of that experience and I think many of us have had this, had this where, you know, you got your iPod on shuffle or you just have a random radio station on or you're you're just a playlist you haven't listened to in a while. It's just playing. And then suddenly that song comes on that reminds you of that time when you listen to that song and that feeling that you had that you haven't had since you listened to that song in that time. Yeah. Like everyone has had that. And I don't know, this is, I'm certainly not at all a neuroscientist. I have no knowledge on diseases of the brain or what age does to the brain, but it seems on a very surface level that that happens even if, many other functions of your brain starting to not work and not behave, you still have the ability to, when you hear that song, connect to that place and that time with that feeling. And, you know, we just recently got married and we got to dance to our favorite song, our song. And I can't think I'll ever hear that song and not relive that memory. I can't imagine. I think even on the throes at the end of my life where my body is just no longer able to function, when that song comes on, I'm going to think of that dance. I was just thinking that same thing. I was like, this it's in our bones, it's in our hearts, and it's in our, our minds. Um, and the fact that Miguel is able to find a balance, is able to find a way to reconcile his uh, his identity as a musician with his identity as a Rivera, I think is symbolic of those Pixar virtues, that we have more, that we can do more and we can give more to each other, um, that we can give each other more space than we are giving each other now, that we can live side by side with conflicting identities. We can live side by side with people who are different from us. We can support each other and we can lift each other up no matter what, even if we disagree. And we can find ourselves again in each other through our relationships to each other and to other people, especially when those relationships are family. And that's that's chosen family too. If you don't have a literal family, a blood family that supports you, I hope that you have a chosen family that supports you and allows you to be more yourself than anything else. You know, my uh, guiding meditation at the end of this podcast, as we're getting close to the final thoughts, is that living, and I am a rational rationalist, I am pretty much a materialist, and I believe that the universe is governed by fundamental, rational, observable principles that we can document and predict phenomenon based off of. And... What I find great about Coco is there is not to me a conflict in wanting to have a relationship with those who have passed with the dead and still living in a rational, free thinking society that we don't have to believe in ghosts 
to believe that the rituals that we do to honor the dead matter. And I think Mexico gets that a little better than what we see a lot in America. In a much more nuanced way, at least. And Dio de los Mortes does it a little better than what we get from Halloween. Um, from the And I love Halloween, but from what we get from supporting and um, getting a connection and having a relationship with the dead. So with that in mind, and with Veterans Day coming up, I'm lucky that I've had three grandfathers in my life. Um, my, my paternal grandfather, the one that I'm related to by blood, died when I was two. My grandmother remarried when I was five. Um, so on that side of the family, I got two grandfathers. So I have Paul Jones, who is a veteran, fought in the Korean War. Dr. Ralph Schroeder, veteran, fought in World War II. And Pete Constantine, veteran, fought in World War II. I just want to remember him. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I hope that we all have a chance at this time of year especially, but throughout our years and throughout our lives to remember those who have touched us, to remember those who aren't with us anymore, and to cherish those who are still with us and remind them that we're going to remember them when they are gone. Um, I want to say one last thing with regard to Coco, and I'm going to come back a little bit to the uh, the personal and the universal, um, and that's that this movie was not was not made for me personally, and that is a good thing. Um, I'm a white woman, and a lot of things are made for me. A lot more things are made for you, Derek. <laughs> but <laughs> it's 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 good to be a white man in America. <laughs> um, it is a lot of art is about but me. I. I hope and things that I heard from my friends who are of Mexican descent, my friends who are of Latino or Latinx descent, is that they felt like something was finally made for them in the mainstream. And I hope that that feeling uh, is is pervasive. I hope that people felt that and felt loved and felt seen by this movie because it it really, really, I think, is a beautiful um, way to to bring a culture that I'm not familiar with to a mainstream uh, screen and to illuminate that and to open my eyes in a new way. So I, that's my kind of blessing here is I hope that this movie saw you. I love that. And, you know, it reminds me when you watch a movie and there's something in it that you don't know about and it piques your interest, how privileged we are to live in a time where I can go right on my computer, Google it, learn everything I want to know about that thing that the movie is about and how great it is to watch a movie like Coco and be like, what is Dilo de los Martes? Dia de los Martes. What is that all about? Yeah. Be like, oh my God, there's a thing called menism and it has to do with the yeah. Aztecs and it's just such an amazing time to be alive. It is. And, and we want to hear from you. So like I said before, get in touch with us on social media, Twitter at the midnight myth, uh, I, I definitely want to hear people's reactions and thoughts on this movie uh, and and get this conversation going um, because I think it's important now more than ever to remember. And until next time, guys, be kind. Remember me. Remember me.